Thank you, Joseph, and thanks, Ollie, and to the band as well. Um, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to be with you, and thank you for joining us as we continue our series in James together. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. I wonder who came up with that childish kid saying. I'm not sure who it was, but looking at our passage in James 3, we can pretty, be pretty sure who it wasn't. I don't think any of us would be in agreement with that childish kid's rhyme. We know the hurt that words can cause. This morning, James wants us, his readers, to understand just how important our words are. Did you spot any of the, the teaser trailers that James has dropped so far about this topic? He already said in this letter we should be slow to speak and that whoever does not bridle his tongue makes his religion worthless. I hope you've noticed too in our series that James's writings are different but complementary to Paul's. Paul majors on salvation by grace through faith alone, but James offers an essential follow-on course from this. James and his readers, is, uh, his readers then and now, he's confronted by one of those unreliable old vending machines. You know the sort. The coin has been slotted in, the expectation builds, but nothing has really happened. The penny hasn't dropped. Is that you this morning? The gospel, this incredible story of God's grand rescue plan for humanity, this wealth of life-changing truth has been received, but has the currency converted in your life today? Or has it got a bit stuck in there somewhere? As we'll see, James is here to give the vending machine a right good shake. James in this book, in every chapter, is obsessed with connecting gospel truth with God-glorifying behavior. James's case study this morning is speech. We're going to realize that what we say says a whole lot about who we are and whose we are. I'll say it again. That's our theme for this morning. This is the test of the tongue. We examine our words and we realize that what we say says a whole lot about who we are and whose we are. James's aim for us in our speech is that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Christ-like wholeness of speech. But do you want that? Do you want to be more like Christ in your speech? If so, James, by the transforming power of God's Holy Spirit, has something for you. This morning, I have three main points for you to remember and apply. Three bullet points. Three words beginning with the letter P. Number one, speech is powerful. Speech is powerful. Number two, speech is poisonous. And our third point, speech is perplexing. Three words beginning with P. Speech is powerful, poisonous, and perplexing. Joseph's already read our passage, James 3, verses 1 to 12. But let's reread and think about the first section, verses 1 to 5. So James 3, verse 1. <coughs> Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if any does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, 
yet it boasts of great things. So our first point, speech is powerful. When I was asked to speak on James 3, I have to admit, I was a little apprehensive. And that was before I read the first verse. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James is referring here to the person at the front of church, responsible for faithfully expounding the word of God to the beloved children of God. Words have power for good or for harm. Therefore, anyone who takes on a formal teaching role in church tasked with delivering the life-giving, life-transforming message of the gospel should not do so lightly. In the famous words of Uncle Ben to Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. But I'm afraid that although it's me up here today, the principle of using our, our powerful words responsibly holds true for all of us. In Deuteronomy 6, God gave all the Israelites the responsibility of teaching his word to their children all the time. Paul, in his letter to Titus, commands the older woman to teach the younger woman. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, encourage one another. There is particular responsibility for pastors, elders, ministers, and preachers, meaning that not all should take up this role. But no matter who or where you are, whether you're at the front of the church or having a coffee at home with a friend or teaching your children or grandchildren a bedtime Bible story, if you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to which you will be held to account. To use your words to truthfully tell God's word, to compassionately build up your fellow brother or sister in Christ. James doesn't want us to think that words themselves are bad, by the way that speech itself is bad, and we should all become mute monks. But with great power comes great responsibility. Martin Luther King used words to stir hearts towards abolishing the horrors of slavery. Hitler used words to weaponize hatred and fear. The point is that words are powerful, and we can use them for good or for harm. God wants us all to be full of care about our words, to realize the power we wield, and why? Because ultimately of the great care for which God has for us, his adopted sons and daughters, I hope you care about how you speak and teach and interact with others because God sure does. Why else has he included a chapter on it in his inspired word? James then moves on in verse 3 to use two metaphors to further describe the power of the tongue. The tongue may seem a small thing, but it steers big things. A galloping thoroughbred racehorse, but steered by the small bit in its mouth. A tremendous ship, a floating fortress, but guided by a comparatively titchy rudder. Have you ever done the, the tour of the Titanic Belfast Museum? Um, I was at it recently. And, and did you know that the rudder of the Titanic weighed 100 tons? Impressive but not as impressive as the fact that it steered a ship weighing over 46,000 tons. Although comparatively small, wherever the bits or wherever the rudder directs is where the, the entire creature, the entire machine, the whole thing is headed. Though appearing puny, they are powerful. So too with our words. Whatever you say says a whole lot about who you are and whose you are. And if your speech is the rudder, then it's an indicator of where you're going. The implied follow-on question is this. The bit steers the horse, and the rudder steers the ship. 
But who or what holds the reins? Who or what is at the helm? Who are we and whose are we? Our society likes to think that it's us, the, the ego, the, the, the deified self that is at the reins, that, that I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. The Bible says no. God tells us that when we follow our sinful desires, we are not free, we are not at the helm. We are captives on a catastrophic crash course, captained by the world, the flesh, and the devil, heading towards something far worse than an iceberg. Jesus tells us in John 8 that whoever sins is a slave of sin. Our tongues, our speech, our words, if we have the honesty to reflect on them for what they are, to bring them into the revealing light of God's perfect word, they show us that we are rebels against a good God. Words are powerful, so there's a responsibility that comes with them. And they have power to expose our sinfulness. That was our first point. Speech is powerful. Maybe I should have warned you that this topic is sobering. Maybe you're realizing that. But keep holding it on in there. We, we must understand our sinfulness before we will recognize our ongoing need for a savior and appreciate and revel in his accomplished work at the cross. Verse five, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Speech is powerful. That was our first word beginning with P. But our second point is this. Speech is poisonous. James has been pretty damning up to this point, but now he really turns up the temperature. In describing the damage that the tongue can do, here he likens it to a fire, a forest fire, actually. It conjures up for me the, the idea of those horrendous fires in the morns that seem to happen more and more frequently nowadays. Or an even bigger scale, the terrifying bushfires of 2019 and 2020 in Australia. Those bushfires, by the time they'd burnt themselves out, had decimated an area the size of the UK and Ireland and some. And how does such devastation start? Every roaring forest fire starts as a small spark that spirals out of control. This is what James likens our speech to. That sharp jive that you, you knew would hit that person just where it hurts. Before we consider the consequence, before a risk assessment is completed, the word is out. Like a spark that rapidly becomes a spreading wildfire, the damage cannot be stopped. The effects cannot be reversed. Broken bones bend, but words can hurt for a lifetime, even for an eternity. Realize this, and you will guard your speech with greater care by greater trust in God. James also describes the tongue as a world of unrighteousness. The damning effects of the tongue are far-reaching staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. We can damage others. We can destroy ourselves and defame God with our words. We can undermine our own usefulness and service for God with a spark that fans into a forest fire that can burn a church family down. Set on fire by hell, as James puts it, the source of the unredeemed tongue is hell. 
Our fiery tongues, the rudders of our lives, reveal our default trajectory. What does what we say say about who we are and whose we are? Well, our default is defiance. Without a savior, we are heading for hell. As Proverbs from which James's building says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Jesus too taught in Matthew's gospel that on the day of judgment, we will give account for every careless word we speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Do you get how serious this is yet? And continuing the universality of the predicament, verse seven, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Have you ever tried to just be a better person? Of course you have. I don't think many or or any of us wake up in the morning aiming to be a bad person. Have Have you ever tried to tame the tongue yourself? Could you? Are you a perfect person? By sheer human effort, we cannot. And to put the final nail in the coffin, James says this, a restless evil full of deadly poison. Our sinful speech and all sin isn't just bad. Whoops, pardon me. It is unrelenting and all-pervading and poisonous to us and all those around us. And ultimately, God wants better than that for us. Do you ever consider that? Maybe God isn't just trying to spoil your fun. Maybe the all-knowing one knows what is best for you. Maybe the one who made you has the instruction manual for the most satisfying life for you. The poison may taste good for a little while, but it's killing you and your joy. Wake up. So far, we've seen that our speech, although it appears puny, is powerful. That misused words can be poisonous. What we say says a whole lot about who we are and whose we are. Well, our third and final point this morning, our third word beginning with P, is that our speech is perplexing. Let's read the final verses of the chapter. Verse 9. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does the spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Like the perplexity of a fresh spring that produces salty water, or a fig tree that produces olives, our speech shows that we are hypocritical and double-minded. That's a term from James 1, double-minded, or literally double-souled. James is alluding here to the insensibility and impossibility of serving two masters simultaneously. Like how Jesus taught we cannot love both God and money, how can we serve both the Lord and the devil with our speech? As James urges us throughout the letter, we cannot, we cannot have a foot in both camps. How can we go on blessing our Lord and Father, and yet curse those made in his image, those who by very nature of being human reflect something of the character of God. It, it doesn't make sense. I'm sure it happens with other folks in other places. Not me. 
Not, not, not here, not in our church, James. Surely not at Crescent. What do you think? I don't think anyone or any church is immune. Contrast this. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And this, serving tea and coffee, helping out at the community week, come on. I think my gifts are a bit bigger and better than that. Other people will volunteer for that, I'm sure. Do we sing or, or, or do we speak of pouring contempt on our pride and yet lash out with prickly words and thoughts when our pride is threatened? Or to take another example, do we sing, all I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. But then almost immediately we are back to anxious toil and self-dependence, using our tongues in complaint and unbelief. How can I possibly get through another Monday morning tomorrow? Are you perplexed at your hypocrisy? Our words show we are so quick to forget what has been revealed to us in the law of liberty. Do we praise God that he, the king of creation, is also the friend of sinners? But then with gossiping glee say, have you seen your woman a few, few rows back? Look at what she's wearing, or not, should I say. What gives her the right to come into a place like this, looking like that? Or look at your man, look at who let the riffraff in, and he's sitting in my spot. Do we say amen at the opportunity to gather for fellowship with an imperfect family of God's people, but then after the service say, that speaker was useless. Those people on the sound desk ruined the service. Who picked that train wreck of a song? Maybe my examples seem a bit exaggerated, a bit Hollywood. United States Hollywood, that is, not County Down Hollywood. But stop for a second. I want us all to seriously ask ourselves this. Does what I say say that I believe that God is not just the Lord of the auditorium, but of everywhere, every interaction? Are we singing in here, but gossiping in the cafe or on the drive home? From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Our sinful speech to our fellow man is ultimately a cursing of God. James juxtaposes our highest calling of blessing God with the lowest evil, not of cursing God, as we might expect him to say, but of cursing men, men made in God's likeness. Doesn't that show us something incredible of the love of God, the care and protection that he has for all those he has made? So that's our three points, our three words beginning with P. We've understood the destructive or constructive power that speech has, that speech is powerful. That was point one. We see our untamed tongue for what it is, deadly poison. And thirdly, speech is perplexing. Our profession of faith and our daily words don't always match up. This is sobering stuff. I hope you've realized that. This is not a cheery topic full of rainbows and unicorns, but the Bible is not fairy tale. God's word speaks into real life. God's word is powerful to speak to our predicament and cut us to the heart. I pray that has been the case for you this morning, as it was for me preparing. Disclaimer, this passage does not mean that if we sin, we are not Christians. 
It does, however, mean that if we profess faith in Christ, it is unnatural to continue to live in a pattern of sin. This should be a wake-up call to our calling. Gospel truth must connect with God-glorifying behavior. So I pray that in that place of conviction at our sinful speech, we would not sulk in my natural habitat, the self-pity pits, but instead realize that what James has said at the outset in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways, and if any does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. We all stumble, so we all need to be humble. We need help. We are in the fiery test of the tongue, in the trial of temptation. But we are to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. If we are to pass this test, however, if we are to attain to that great goal of letting steadfastness have its full effect, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, if ultimately we are to grow in Christ-like maturity and enjoy nearness with God, we need help. I beg that you would see that. Humility, that is the foundational characteristic of the Christian life. The first step, whether this morning you are seeking to be made right with God or to continue in a gospel-shaped life, the first step is always receiving. You need help. Our speech shows us that. But that's the good news. We have help. What is the gospel if not help to the helpless? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And from this place of humility that we must occupy, we realize that the more perfect and the more complete we come, the closer to maturity that we are, the more we realize our need, our first need, our ongoing need for the Savior. Christ, the power and wisdom from above. Writing in the very next chapter, James gives us the blueprint for how we should approach all our struggles in this life, including how we fight the fight of faith in the pursuit of more God-glorifying speech. And notice how the first step is not us, but God's grace. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let us give thanks to Jesus, who bore our sinful speech in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He died for our holiness. Draw near in humility to the perfect God-man who has passed the test of the tongue. He is the one James knew had never stumbled, never even for a moment, even amongst the mocking and the derision of the cross, never did he ever commit sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He has taken upon himself the worst of the human heart, exemplified by the poisonous tongue, 
And amidst the taunting, spoke these words, Father, forgive. He is our daily saviour and helper. Submit your tongue and your whole self to him. And in doing so, use your speech powerfully so that what you say says that you are a changed new creation, born of God, and that you belong to him. Let's close in prayer, and then I'll hand back to Ollie for a final song. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word, for your speech to us. It's so practical and so relevant to our daily lives. But Lord, we also acknowledge that your word shows us our sinfulness. Lord, we confess that with our words, with our speech toward our fellow man and toward you, that we are we're often far, far from perfect. We're poisonous. With the same mouth, Lord, come blessing and cursing. We're, we're perplexed at our, at our own hypocrisy. But thank you, Lord, that you are a, a loving Heavenly Father who, out of love, constantly reminds us of our need, our daily need for you. Thank you that you've offered us help, the gospel, this transforming good news that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, in human flesh, that he walked the earth we walk that he understands the struggles that we have, that he is able to help us when we are going through various kinds of trials. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you willingly went to the cross, that you took on the worst of the human heart, my sin on your body on the tree, that it was my sin that held you there. Thank you, Lord, that as you rose from the dead, we know that your work of salvation is accomplished and perfect. Thank you, Lord, that you are committed to changing us, to redeeming and taming our tongues and transforming every aspect of our fallen nature. Help us all, Lord, to have the humility to realize we cannot do this ourselves. Help us not to forget what we have learned, but to leave here drawing near again to you as we use our words to powerfully tell of your greatness. For it's in the name of the Lord Jesus that we pray. Amen.